Hey guys, Montel here, and welcome to this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. My guest today received his undergraduate education at Cornell University, his medical degree at George Washington School of Medicine and Health and Sciences, and his residency and fellowship training at Harvard Medical School, Massachusetts General Hospital, and the Brigham and Women Hospital. He is a nationally recognized expert on clinical cannabinoid therapeutics and has chaired multiple national and international conferences on the use of medical cannabis for therapeutic purposes. He is an anesthesiologist and a pain management physician, having been in the military and private and academic practice for over 35 years, and is also the chief medical officer for Acreage Holdings. Dr. Bergman, thank you so much for joining us today here. Let's be blunt, sir. Uh, thank you for having me, Montel. I appreciate the opportunity to talk. Absolutely. And I appreciate having you here on the show because it's uh, we try our best to see if we can dispel some myths and give our listeners as much information as they can absorb to help them navigate this really almost daunting landscape of cannabis in the United States of America and also worldwide. So why don't you let's start before you go into what you're doing with cannabis now and in the last couple of years, let's go way back. Why don't you tell me a little bit about your background? Where did you grow up? I, uh, I was born in the Bronx and moved uh, shortly after that uh, to the D.C. Maryland area uh, where I went to high school. And uh, boy. I'm a Maryland boy, but so I was born in, in Baltimore and uh, I went to high school in Andover at Andover High School in Linthicum, Maryland. Were you, were you in Maryland or were you? I was, at, I was at Montgomery Blair High School in, uh, okay. in Silver Spring, uh, but I lived in Owings Mills for a little while. So I'm familiar with the Baltimore terrain as well. Gotcha. And growing up in, in that area, you know, uh, typical high school? Uh, yeah, nothing nothing particularly dramatic. I was always interested in science. I was pretty much a science geek uh, in high school. Uh, played soccer, ran track, uh, nothing particularly remarkable. Didn't stay, you know, stayed out of trouble. When did, when did you start to think that, man, maybe I graduate, I'll go to college and see if I can become a doctor? When did that come up? You know, that's really interesting. I thought about that. Uh, uh, when I was living in the Bronx, I was very close to my grandparents and my grandfather was suffering from COPD. He, I remember vividly, I think at the age of five, I was at the Bronx Veterans Hospital and I saw him suffering in, in sort of his last gasping days. And I, even at that young age, I was just fascinated by the physicians and the clinicians and how, and how, they, how they would take care of, uh, of patients. And, and you know, I had an aptitude for science and biology growing up, and I think I pretty much from an early age I thought about healthcare. Gotcha. And um, then you went ahead to, to graduated from from high school. Did you go straight to college, or you go to the military first? No. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I was interested uh, growing up in Maryland. I uh, had a lot of exposure to the Naval Academy. I was really interested. In fact, I got a congressional appointment, and I was going to go there. Uh, but I was really interested in, in neurobiology. And Cornell had one of the best uh, sort of brain science programs in the country. And I opted to go there, but I was always interested in the Navy. And I did a little ROTC in college. And then uh, when I found uh, that I was, I was gonna head to med school, I couldn't pay for it. And I joined the service and, uh, and that's a whole different track. And I know that you and I share that, that, uh, that path as well. We've discussed it before. I mean, same thing as you. Growing up in the Maryland area, I grew up in Anne Arundel County, 
you know, just 25 miles from 20 minutes from the Naval Academy. So, but I also like you in some ways, I, I, I really didn't consider going to the Academy at first. Um, you know, I was very much involved in student politics and stuff like that when I was in high school and, you know, goofing around a lot, playing in a band. And, and then, you know, when it came time to, when I graduated from high school, I got several scholarships and was capable of going to school, but I just opted to enlist in the Marine Corps instead. So I enlisted in the Marine Corps. And as soon as I got away from Marine Corps boot camp, you know, my first duty station, uh, my uh, chief NCOs were saying, why are you even here? You should be, you know, you should be an officer. And I was like, well, why right. do you do that? And they said, well, you know, you ever heard of this place called the Naval Academy? I said, that's right down the street from where I live. The next thing you know, I'm off to the prep school and then off to the academy and I graduate. So you joined the service. And and I, w- I will tell you, part of the reason why I did join the service is that I had a scholarship. It really wasn't like a full load scholarship. So um, I didn't really have the, fan- the financial wherewithal to go to school. So I thought, well, let me go to in the service first, get the GI Bill or get, you know, some money in my pocket. Then I could go to, to, to college. But then I ended up going you know, two years after I graduated and went on and, and got commissioned as a naval officer. You went to undergrad, then you went on active duty? Uh, correct. Correct. Well, no, actually, then I went to med school. Oh, I got out of college in three years, and uh, I, I just sort of had an, a year of uh, living in my parents' basement, uh, gotcha. which, which was a trip. But uh, I, I really couldn't uh, afford med school. I got into GW, which was probably one of the more expensive ones in the country, but opted to go there because I liked the DC area and I had friends and family there. And uh, I loved it. I never looked back. Uh, so I I, uh, I matriculated just as a regular civilian student, but I was actually a member of the armed forces at that point. So they gave me full freight, which was fantastic. And then of course I had obligations to the service following graduation. So you started as a doctor in the Navy. Correct, correct. I did my internship at Oakland Naval Hospital in the Bay Area, and then I was actually deployed on active duty for about two years on a ship. Uh, so I got, I was on the USS Roanoke, which was an oiler with the Carl Vinson Battle Group out of Alameda. And I remember, and these were these were the days of long cruises. And I we we left in I think July and came back the following August. So a four. What year was this? What year was this? Uh, this was like 1984. You know what? We we have so much in common because I got to tell you, I remember, you know, when I graduated from the academy in 80, I did one of the, we were the first battle group. I was on the Kitty Hawk battle group in the Indian Ocean. And we were one of the first post battle groups post the post-World War, no, post-Korean War, World War II, to actually right. get beer at sea. Because we did like, I, I did a hundred and, 80 days in the IO, then we... So you had a beer X. I had a beer X. Yeah, beer so I lived I lived through two of those. I lived through two of those, too. It was really crazy. Did it a second time. It was really crazy. I I had a, I was on another deployment after I graduated from the academy and I, I graduated cryptologic school. Um, I was on a destroyer in... Uh, and this was really crazy. In Central America. I graduated from the, from... The Defense Language Institute in Russian got put on a destroyer and had to go do a Central American mission with all Spanish language rather than Russian language. And then we sounds like the Navy. Sounds like the Navy, right? Then we ran through the Panama Canal to become a part of the battle group that invaded Grenada. So by the time we hit the Grenada, we were already out at sea for like 187 days. Right. And 
It was so funny. My team got pulled onto the island off of the ship that I was on. And then when we came back, they had already had their beer. And the captain was like a stickler to regulations. Was, you guys funny. deserve three beers. If you want your beer, here's what I'll do. He put his dinghy in the water, pushed us back from the boat on a, on a cord, and we sat there and drank our three beers or two beers. That's great. That's it was, great. It was a well, I was a, I, I, I drank our share in the Indian Ocean, probably a thousand miles from Diego Garcia. But, you know, we were in the Persian Gulf uh, on and off uh, continuously through the early 80s. And it was it was a great experience. I was ship's doctor, probably for twelve hundred men, and uh, it was you know you know what it's like. It was oh, just yeah. a great experience. Great people. I had a huge amount of respect for the for the line, you know, the real navy, and uh, it's it stayed with me. And, and we'll we'll go through that later as to what I'm doing with the veterans now. Sure, you know, and I'll, I'll share some stuff that I'm working on because I think we'll probably have some synergistic places that we might be able to, to you know regroup a little later on about. Um, now tell me, after you, you you spent how many years in in the navy? Well, uh, I had thirteen years in, but part of that was education, and uh, and then I you know I went on I, I served at a naval hospital in Puerto Rico uh, for several years as as an anesthesiologist. I, I I after after my deployment, I went back for training. I I got lucky enough to hit a residency in Boston, and I did some fellowships there, and then went back in the navy as a trained anesthesiologist. And you got out officially. Officially came on active duty when? Um, I think the uh, probably nineteen ninety one. Gotcha. That's almost the same time I did. That's when I transitioned over and started my career in television. So then, where did you go when you got out? Uh, you know, well, that's interesting. I ended up in Baltimore because you know I was overseas. I was deployed. I was an active duty service member, and I knew I wanted to be somewhere on the East Coast, and it was just easy. Uh, to get an academic job. So I actually worked at University of Maryland for a year. I was a chief of anesthesia at one of their hospitals in Baltimore. And I oh, lived in Owings wow. Mills. It was, uh, it was, it was great. It was, it was a very interesting experience. My sister was employed by the University of Maryland at that time. As a matter of fact, um, she, she ended up, she had a, a very lengthy full career at the University of Maryland. She was the head of uh, purchasing um, as she was out at UMBC. Okay. At that time. Um, so then you and you spent your time which hospital in Baltimore? I was at Kernan Hospital, uh, which is on Security Boulevard outside of uh, outside of Baltimore. Sure. And uh, I was there for a year, and you know I was sort of you know I was a clinician. I like treating patients, and this was a little bit more of an administrative job for me. I didn't really love it, and uh, I quickly transitioned to private practice and ended up in York, Pennsylvania, for I don't know fourteen years or so, practicing uh, clinical anesthesia. Okay. And now, I mean, following that as a background, when did you become interested or when did you start thinking about cannabis, especially understanding your military background where it's completely frowned upon? Oh, yeah. CBD outlawed. Um, right. Now, you can hardly talk. You can hardly talk about cannabis actually in the Navy and even, even today to some extent. But it's a great question. So I was practicing pain management as well as anesthesia. And I had a pretty busy pain practice in Southern York County and just observational. And, you know, I'm a student of the brain. I studied for years, you know, as an anesthesiologist, how drugs uh, operate on the central nervous system, really understand how, how analgesics work. And in the pain business, back in the early 90s, as, as you would probably recall, 
opioids was our mainstay. Montel, I was writing prescriptions for hundreds, if not thousands of opioid pills in that decade. And it was the patients that came to me who were, you know, struggling with uh, use disorder and, and opioid addiction. And, uh, you know, Pennsylvania was not a medical cannabis state at all, but uh, patients would tell me, I had, a, I had a patient with prostate cancer, I could remember like it was yesterday, how he was using a cannabis to ameliorate his use of opioids. And I was fascinated by this and probably one of the early sort of uh, individuals looking at the science behind, well, why the hell is cannabis useful as a replacement as an analgesic. And that led me on a really interesting journey mm -hmm. into the science of how the endocannabinoid system works and, and how uh, there, are, there is absolutely a parallel system within the body uh, of analgesia uh, using, using uh, marijuana-like compounds that the body actually produces. And so that was really my adventure into the study of cannabis because I was not a cannabis user. And this is late 90s, late 90s, early 2000s? Uh, probably the mid 90s. Okay. And uh, mm -hmm. I was, uh, by, by that point, you know, not a lot of people were espousing the, the, uh, the bene beneficent effects of cannabis. And I was, and I was on a, I did a lot of lectures. I did a lot of uh, regional, a couple of national lectures and I became somewhat of uh, of a spokesman on on you know like an early adopter to cannabis you were you were outlier you were not just an early adopter you were an outlier back then you're talking about the early 90s I mean you know it wasn't until what 1998 that the federal government filed for its own patent for uh, a CBD and for yes. uh, cannabinoids and they, they gave themselves a patent in 2001 um, as a matter of fact the published data that you know, Meshulam was coming up with in the early 90s uh, that was paid for by us, right. our taxpayer dollars in Israel, really was it 93, 4 is when he first published some information? Well, well, they published the first round of information like in the late 80s about the endocannabinoid system, but it went right over everybody's head. Then it, they republished again in the early 90s. And then people finally said, oh, what is this thing? But here it is now. We're sitting here at 2002, 22, and we still have doctors going, what is this thing? Are you kidding oh, yeah. me? It's, it's so true. I sit on the, I, I was appointed by the governor of New Hampshire to be on the Therapeutic Cannabis Oversight Board. And part of that is talking to physicians all over the state. And I talk nationally as well in my other gig with Acreage. But the point is exactly to your point that cannabis is still a bit of anathema to a lot of conventional physicians. But the science is there and it's growing uh, uh, you know, weekly in terms of innovations and discoveries in terms of what in fact the endocannabinoid system is and how important it is to, to, to body maintenance. I mean, I, I, I have so many, just, just in, in those three sentences and these three questions, I have so many questions. I'm trying to figure out which way do I want to go. Let's see. Um, let, let's start with this one. Let's let's just break that down. You were dealing and studying on your own, reaching out to do what doctors are supposed to do, and that's you know continuing medical education and you know making sure that you stay up with the current data. You just right. talked about, about we're finally getting the research done, but we know now that there are more peer-reviewed, published documents on cannabis than just about any other drug in the marketplace today. 30 Absolutely. 30-something thousand. 30 thousand. There's more 
peer-reviewed published documentation on cannabis, cannabis and cannabinoids than is on aspirin. Right. I, on you know, alcohol. it's a, uh, you're, you're preaching to the choir. I, I wrote an article on this and I got so many hits and so many contacts uh, by this article. You know, as a physician, we are primarily interested in curated, what I call peer-reviewed data. And, and the, the great depository for that in, in the world, really, is the National Library of Medicine and, and a database known as PubMed, which is probably 30 million articles, 7,000 peer-reviewed journals. And if you look up cannabis in PubMed, you get about 34,000 hits. That's 34,000 published articles. And, and if you were to look up the number of articles on, say, Humira, which is the number one selling drug in this country, it, it pulled in $22 billion for, uh, for, for Glaxo. Uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm actually not sure who, who's making it. But uh, the combined, the combined uh, citations for Humira, Prozac, and Xanax, three of the biggest, and Tylenol. Are, do not exceed that of cannabis in terms of research study. Yet, yet we still have doctors and science, doctors, politicians saying, well, when they finally get some research done, I feel like smacking them upside the head. What stupid? Go look it up. Oh my God. It's un, it's unbelievable. I, I have spoken to probably 15 state house, state legislatures across the country. And the first question that legislators ask me is, well, there's no research on cannabis. Show me where's the evidence. And it's, 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 it's a bit of a slog. But the fact is that the research is coming. Uh, the, the DEA has awakened to the point where now they have, they have sanctioned and registered private growers with research licenses. And so the research is coming. And we can, we can talk, we can fill an entire hour on the type of research and the conditions that, that, have, that have come from this. I would mind. I would mind. I mean, what, what do you think about recently? It was about last month, I think. There was uh, three peer-reviewed published documents that talk about CBGA and CBDA being having some effect on the spike protein of the SARS cov oh, yes. virus yes. to yeah. block it from entering the cells. Right. I, I, I saw that, and I was like, "Are you kidding me? How dare somebody say there's no research being done?" Oh my gosh! Yeah, that was a very compelling article too, out of very Washington State. Uh, yeah, I'm familiar with that. Yeah, I, I am. I had like, well, I think mm, not probably as as extensively as you, but I am a kind of a, a, a medical research geek myself. I kind of spent a lot of my time digging and digging and digging, trying to find information so that I can, like I said, at the beginning of this this uh, podcast, I'm trying to educate my viewers as much as I can. And I'm really trying to uplift this country because what we ought to try to understand right now, especially with America going through such a tough economic time that we're going through, we are just scratching the surface when it comes to cannabis hemp. We're like the Wright brothers pushing that plane down a tree. I mean, down push that train down that plane down a hill. It wouldn't plane down a hill. There's so much more that's going to come out of hemp that we we've already known. We knew this at you know back in the 1590s when we used hemp, uh, the hemp sativa plant for everything from clothing to to bricks to wood to rope to you name it. And you know, I mean, a lot of people like to think, and I I've come to this conclusion for myself, is that we like to try to believe that America was built on cotton and tobacco. Bullshit. America was built on hemp. Absolutely. If you were a farmer back in the 1590s, 1600s, you were considered, you know, unpatriotic if you didn't grow hemp. 
If you, right. you know, and multiple times along the way, our government has ordered and and passed rules and regulations that farmers had to grow hemp. So it's 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 so ridiculous that this is something that could, especially using the biomass, some of the leftover biomass from this human consumption model that we have. You know, I'm, I'm involved in so many different things. Um, Let me interrupt for a second. This sure. is just such a great uh, line of discussion. At the end of the 19th century, hemp was the number one agricultural product in the world. Right. All of the all of the rigging of all the sailboats right. uh, was hemp. The sails were hemp. How about uh, the word canvas really comes from cannabis? People yes. don't understand that, right? Right. And you know, you also know that the that the the Revolutionary Army was clothed in hemp fiber. George Washington was wearing hemp when he was crossing the Delaware. You know, right. uh, uh, yeah, the uh, the Declaration of Independence, the uh, the Constitution, all on hemp paper. All of the impressionist paintings that we see in the um, in the museums throughout the world from the early twentieth uh, and nineteenth century, all on hemp canvas. Yes, Fascinating. it is. And, and and then let's go back to consumption. But you know, we our sailors are out at sea ate a porridge of hemp seed because they recognized even back in the early 1600s that hemp had such a high protein content. And people don't, I don't think people want to remember that or want to think of that because they think, well, hemp seed, well, hemp seed don't get you high. It's not going to get you high because it hasn't developed and turned into THC yet. Correct. But that hemp seed has a protein level in it that most farmers, most people in America ate it on a regular basis, weekly. You know, along with oatmeal, they ate hemp meal. Correct. Correct. Fascinating. But then that that also then makes you wonder when you think about how a, a you know a race that wasn't as hardy as it is today when it comes to you know we look at our, the differences in our life expectancy from forty seven years back in you know nineteen ninety nine to now we're living to be eighty and a robust eighty and you know but. But I, I often think it's like, how much more robust would we have been had we continued to consume cannabis and hemp as a food supplement throughout the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s? Would we be more, I don't know, would we be more, have more robust of an immune system? Because we know that the cannabinoids at, at all have a profound effect on our cellular homeostasis. And was it the fact that we had included that in our diets early on that, you know, we don't know, I, I, I kind of chicken before the, horror, the egg thing, but we don't know how pervasive some of the autoimmune diseases that we have today really were back then because they were not be able to diagnose them back then. But I don't think there was the same level of autoimmune disease in the 1800s as there have 1900s as there is now. Or well, it's quite possible. I mean, the whole the whole aspect of modulating immune function with cannabis is absolutely fascinating. I'm not so certain that hemp seed itself, which doesn't really have a storehouse of cannabinoids uh, like the plant does and the flower does, but the point is that um, cannabis has been in continuous use for over 3,000 years. And as I like to tell legislators, it's, it's actually uh, the longest clinical trial known to man uh, in terms of safety and efficacy. And uh, it, it would be very interesting uh, to, to see uh, what sort of uh, aspects of autoimmune disease occurred 
uh, in a prior century as opposed to today and what some of the modifiable factors are. But certainly cannabis plays a large role and I think the potential is very high. I know you, you, you are very much involved with acreage, but I mean, I would love to see a company, you know, get one of those DEA authorizations to just study the seed, the seed itself. Let's find out why when that seed starts to germinate at six weeks, it creates something called CBG and that CBG then turns into CBD, THC. What, what's between nothing and CBG? There's something there. I, I, that's what I've always been thinking since, you know, <laughs> and I, I, I wish for an opportunity to be able to study that or get somebody to study that or, or fund a study on that to find out what is that in that seed that we don't really pay close attention to because we all pay attention to once the germination starts, but something's going on in that seed before that. I, I think that's fascinating. And actually I have a lot of colleagues uh, among them who have research licenses and with my network of people in, in uh, chemical analysis, I think that would be a really very interesting study. And no one's looking there. No one's really looking at the seed. I have to tell you that. Except for the except the the genetics of it because it, it has to do with growing male versus female plants. But, right, I think that's the only um, place they go. But they don't look at the value of that seed itself, and I I, I think that's where you know hopefully I don't know twenty thirty years from now that's where I think the big bang is going to come from when it comes very, to that's very exciting. Yeah, so let, 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 let's so you, you, I'm sorry I got us off track, but let's go back for a second. So you became interested in cannabis initially because of just, you know, I guess, you know, anecdotal stories from some of your patients that were talking about how they were helping to ameliorate not only pain, but some other symptoms. That got you interested enough to start the education process. And what did you do to educate yourself? Uh, well, as I mentioned, I used uh, peer-reviewed journals, pub, uh, PubMed primarily, and uh, because I'm an anesthesiologist and I think like one, I think in terms of drugs, activity, and, and therapy. And uh, I, I realized, of course, from research studies, there are over 150 cannabinoids and over 500 active compounds, including terpenes that we could talk about. Uh, and, and we've really only identified a, a handful of them. And, you know, I know that physicians recommend cannabis to patients all over the world. Patients take it for self-care, but there's no consistent dosage or mechanism of administration. And what possible way can, I, I was asking myself, how can we approach treatment success if we don't know which are the active compounds and what are they doing and how are they positively affecting the patient? And so I, I, I made it my study, my, my, one, of, one of my major goals to, to learn about this more and, uh, and just pulling the research. You know, you can't go, by, and I, I tell lay people this all the time, you can't, can't educate yourself on the internet. I mean, there's way too much information, misinformation, I should say. In fact, I wrote an article once called um, Miss, uh, Miss Canna, which is, is the misinformation and disinformation associated with cannabis that, that uh, advertisers and websites use as clickbait. And, and most, of those, most of those are real myths. And I'm much more interested in curated, peer-reviewed information. And it's out there. And, and yeah, you're right. It's out there. I mean, and, you know, again, I mean, most people, and I've had conversations as of late and, you know, over the last 10 years with Dr. You know, I, I was very fortunate. I got an opportunity to, back in 2011, 
go to Israel and sit down with Dr. Mishulam in his office. And um, I put him on tape. I couldn't use it, but I put him on tape. And and we had a really long and robust conversation back then. And that's really when I got, I think, became a zealot in trying to find out as much as I could find out. And, you know, when you start talking to some people right now, you know, again, you're right. They literally go up online, type in, get an article, clickbait, something comes up, endocannabinoid system. Oh, that's a good buzzword. I'll start using that buzzword. Then you ask them, what does that mean? They don't even know that the two end the two of the endocannabinoids that we don't know what all of them are, the ones that we manufacture in our body being anandamide 2AG, they don't even know what their purposes are. And I find it just it boggles my mind, Doc. I'm so sorry to say it. I uh, that that I can sit down and have a conversation with a doctor who can't tell me what anandamide does. Right. I'm like, really? Are you kidding me? Is this as much this is how deep you dug? I mean, I, it took me three articles to figure it out, but you know, I'm not a doctor. I only did three. Doctors probably do 20, right? And oh, well, I, you know, just in this brief conversation we're having now, I am absolutely convinced you know more than 90% of physicians about cannabis. I, 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 just the very fact that you know of the existence of the endocannabinoid system, you know about the endogenous cannabinoids. Uh, it's 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 a bit of a slog for for me to uh, talk to physicians about it because uh, first of all they have a close a lot have closed minds about it and uh, and the, you know they don't want to do the work. How do we how do we let's let's stay on this for just one second? I mean, how do you think? Because I mean, you take a look at the last two years. I think one of the biggest issues right now facing the cannabis industry in America and worldwide is lack of education on the part of those in business. We have become so, such zealots on B2B, trying to see if we can get our own little footprint here and there, here and there, but really kind of almost totally neglect educating the consumer. Because if you educate the consumer, the consumer will drive the education of the doctors, I think. So I think it's incumbent upon our industry to do as much as we can to continue to give the the, the viewer, like here on, you know, uh, let's be blunt, but viewers around the country. I mean, I think they need to have the information as a consumer so that number one, they can navigate the space. If they decide to get involved in it, they can go to a dispensary or someplace and understand what they're actually looking for and asking for rather than relying on some, you know, 20 something year old bud tender who literally read one article and tries to regurgitate that back to them. Um, I, I really think that it, it it's incumbent upon this industry, especially right now. This is 2022. We should be doing this, put, put brakes on, urgh, stop trying to sell as much pot as we can sell and start trying to sell as much information as we can sell because information is what's going to drive this over the next 20 years. But I, I don't. I, I, I say this, I feel like I'm, I'm screaming this in deaf ears in the industry when I go to some some conventions and, and, and other things, it's like a waste of my time trying to get these people to educate people. I, I absolutely have to concur. I think education and, and product sales should go hand in hand. Certainly the medical cannabis market is more amenable and conducive to you know true patient education. But what's really interesting is that the adult use or what we call the recreational market, uh, those, those consumers are also to a large degree using cannabis as medicine. They're either using it for anxiety or for sedation or for appetite improvement. And don't even get me started on, on cancer therapy. 
Doc, I got to tell you something. I, I, I agree with you 1 million percent. I have said, it. if you go back to any of these podcasts, you'll hear me say it over and over and over again. This whole idea of adult use or recreational use, I think is a bullshit term to begin with. I think anybody who gravitates towards cannabis is gravitating towards cannabis because they have an underlying medical issue that they may not even call a medical issue. The person who says that I, I, I like to get, get a hold of some cannabis because you know, it helps me sleep. Well, they have a sleep problem. Correct. And it says, you know, well, it makes me it makes me feel better than, you know, because I, I get up in the morning without that headache or I get up in the morning without having a hangover. I get it because you're trying to reduce your anxiety when you come home. That's why you were drinking five glasses of wine and you now figured out that one, you know, half of the joint made you feel better than five glasses of wine. That's an underlying medical reason. And I think that that's another where area where we in the industry have done ourselves a disservice by buying into this idea of adult use or recreational use, we should be saying- Yeah, I hate that term. I hate that term. Uh, You know, I do a a lecture called, it's not about getting high. And uh, and I talk about micro dosing THC. And and you know who loves that lecture? Uh, The seniors, the largest growing segment of our population that is using cannabis that are new users is over 55. And uh, and it's it's all about- You're you're nailing it. I'm I'm literally, I think I want to make sure, Keith, I know you're listening to me, brother, but we need to make sure this this podcast gets blown up 9 million times. Why? Back in what, 2011, Israel declared cannabis a geriatric drug. Absolutely. And it is. It It is. is. I mean, uh, you know, we could get into indications and diseases, but as you probably know, uh, certain aspects of cannabis and cannabinoids are exquisite anti-inflammatory medications. And uh, so for the relief of joint pain and arthritis, as well as other immunologically and inflammatorily mediated illnesses, which is right up the alley of any senior citizen, cannabis is uh, in, in, in proper uh, dosage, is absolutely indicated. And in terms of safety, far and above more safe than uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs that cause bleeding disorders or opioids or other potent agents that can cause cognitive problems. I just, I, I, you know, even though I'm not practicing medicine um, per se, uh, I get a lot of calls and I just uh, discussed uh, care in a 94 year old gentleman with, with severe spinal stenosis, couldn't even get out of bed. And I started him on microdose THC. And I was really worried because he was on Eliquis, which is a blood thinner. Uh, but, but with appropriate management and supervision, this guy has got his life back. And, and I know these are anecdotes and I know physicians, uh, they can't stand anecdotes. It's not, it's not robust data. But to me, anecdotes are the test studies for research. Those are the pilot studies that push you into asking the right questions uh, that serve up sort of these clinical double-blind trials, which we're not able to do in this country to any extent with cannabis. If we were to collect the data from doctors all over the country, you'd probably find out that these anecdotes are at least 20 to 30 to 40 to 50,000 individuals strong. So when does the anecdote not be an anecdote? You just said, when is the anecdote? Well, this is, I'm sorry to interrupt. This is a great point. I wrote a 
a grant uh, to to set up a huge national marijuana database, and I, I called it Data Jane, and it was really doing just that, extracting all the data points of using phone apps of all the patients, uh, what they were using, what kind of weed they were using, what was the terpene mix, uh, as well as their indications and their results. And only through the uh, amassing of tens of millions of data points could we really assess and analyze where efficacy lies. And uh, th that grant did not go through, probably more for political reasons than any, but it will. I, I, I am absolutely certain it will. It's information forums such as this uh, that helps propel this. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's going to come. I think it's going to, you know, it just, it's, it's going to be a matter of getting, you know, the word out. Again, part of that education thing, I'm living down, I'm down in Miami, Florida, and, you know, we're in the senior citizen capital world down here in Florida. And <laughs> I say that jokingly, but there are so many people who are undercover cannabis users down here that, you know, and a lot of them are doing exactly what you say. They are microdosing. I mean, I think, um, you know, I came up with some products, you know, years ago, I was one of the first people, I think, um, and it, I'm telling you back in 2001, I was out seeking CBD laden cannabis when, you know, the majority of the growers in this country were trying to grow the CBD out of the cannabis. As a matter of fact, I got some, right, right. I was able to get, get a hold of a couple of, you know, I, I've been a Keef smoker since about 2001, I, I, I dabble in just a little bit of flour, but majority of what I consume and had to consume is either been keef or oil extracted from keef. And, you know, I remember back in 2001, 2002, I found a grower or two up in Northern Humboldt County area that literally was sent, I'll give you as much of that CBD shit as you want. And I mean, basically I was getting some of that for free because they didn't want it because they couldn't sell it. And I was taking the CBD and then finding, you know, a really decent strain that I liked that, you know, goes back in my journey, and and I think this is something else that we found with people who utilize cannabis for more of a medical purpose, your journey isn't exactly 100% stable. Now, it should be, but it's not. I mean, there was a while where I saw it very high CBD of, say, maybe, maybe 7 to 3, 75% uh, uh, CBD, 25% THC, you know, where I would mix together. And then I started noticing that felt a little bit better at a one-on-one when I was looking for the particular kind of relief. And then there was a period of time when I needed to go, you know, a higher THC, not as much CBD because the CBD was kind of making me a little bit cloudy and a little bit lethargic, whereas a THC literally kept me on my game and right. especially with dealing with and coping with my neuropathic pain. And then, you know, in the last, mm, eh, I, 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 I unfortunately suffered a, a pretty severe hemorrhagic stroke uh, four years ago that should have killed me, but it didn't. And I'm glad it didn't. Um, I'm now almost, you know, hundred percent recovered from that. However, but after my stroke, I started to notice that, you know, I have a little difficulty if I don't really pay very close attention to what it is. I, first of all, let me say, I accept no cannabis from anybody. Nobody can walk up and give me a joint and say, Hey, you want to, try? no, I don't want to try it. I sure. don't. You don't know what it is. Correct. I only utilize a cannabis that, or something that I made or helped formulate myself. And then if I didn't formulate it, then I have, I always have on me, I always have, you know, a little bit of, of CBD keef, a little bit of THC keef, high keef, and I can mix them together 
and elicit the response I want. But I've noticed in the last year, I have less of a tolerance for THC than I used to. The tolerance meaning what I want to experience from it. I don't need sure. I, My objective is not to get high and be blown away and not be able to think or get off the couch. My objective is to be able to function without me feeling that shit in my feet. And so, you know, and then the pain in my feet. And, and in order to do that, I got to kind of modulate. Now, I'm right now running about, uh, again, I'm back down to 20, about a 25% THC and a, and a 75% CBD. And of course, the terpene mix is very important for me. Um, and I put those together and that seems to be my sweet spot. And I, I'm okay. And like, you know, I, I so far today, most days, uh, five years ago, I literally was a waking baker. You know what I mean, I woke, I, I had, uh, you know, a pipe beside my bed so that if I was kicking and, and having leg tremors at night, I could roll over, take a quick hit, go back to sleep. Now I don't even start, even in, I take a lot of CBD. I've already taken my CBD this morning. I probably won't take my first hit of a cannabinoid with THC in it until four or five o'clock this afternoon. And when I do, I literally take such a small inhalation. It's really almost crazy. And it's an oil, um, a vapor. So I take a very small inhalation and I'm fine. And then I'll take a little bit more before I go to sleep. And that keeps me asleep throughout the night. And I'm on to tomorrow. See, this process uh, that you're talking about, of course, is titration, drug yeah. titration, which is something we in anesthesia do all the time. You know, we give a little bit of a drug to a patient, we see the effect, then we give a little more. And, and, and your, your, your process is extremely mindful and quite sophisticated, and, and I, I can totally appreciate it. Unfortunately, the vast majority of users don't titrate like that. They and and the reason it 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 harkens back to what we said before, and that's education. They're not getting the education on how to use this medicine correctly, and and that's really really the key. Uh, and and it takes it takes help. It takes help. You can't really discover it on your own. I agree with you, sir. And I mean, one of one of the problems has been, and you know, when we look at COVID and we look at at what's happened to now kind of segregate us. And now everybody's, you know, holed up in their home. They're having their cannabis delivered to themselves and their trade. You know, cannabis used to be something that was more of a social experience and, and social in the sense of a couple of people might get together and then you would judge in some ways. I, I hardly ever remember not being with three or four other people and, you know, you consume and then maybe later on that evening thinking about how this person responded versus the way that person responded. That's part of that collection of data that a person was doing without even thinking about it. Cause you know, right. they know that Johnny, you know, passed out on the couch. Hell, I didn't take as many hits as he did. And they're doing a little bit of data collection while they were out socializing. Now people are buying stuff, having it delivered to their front door, not able to ever see the response that anyone else has had to it, not even being able to gauge what their response is to it. So yeah, I, 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 I agree. I think that, you know, one of the things that that's, we are again, so behind in, and that is even, you know, I, I, I would want to do it here on my website, but I can't on my podcast because, you know, if I light up right now and explain to people, well, let me show you, this is, this is the size of a, of an inhalation that I may take off a vape pen, you know, I'll get kicked off the site for five or right. six Whereas right, right. if I was some, some stoner, I can sit here and smoke up and put clouds in the air and they applaud the fact that, you know, 5 million people are watching, putting put clouds in the air. It's just ignorant. 
You know, you speak to a larger point, and that is, I think uh, a, a useful learning uh, platform would be a titration school. Uh, I, I, I did something like this for a, a large senior uh, expo in Southern Pennsylvania, uh, where there were 30,000 seniors that came to Reading, PA, uh, to learn about all kinds of aspects. And I got to speak uh, on the topic of cannabis. And I, I basically held a workshop, not, not in real time, I didn't light up a joint or do anything, but I explained in excruciating detail just what you discussed uh, a few moments ago about uh, you need to, uh, to have a gauge on what the medicine is doing to you. And another point that's really confusing and, and, and somewhat confounding is that there's a lack of consistency of product. In other words, you may find something that works well for movement disorder or pain or spasticity. And then four weeks later, if you go back to that same dispensary or that same source, they may not have that strain. And or if that, they had a strain, if the strain was the second batch grown and it didn't grow out the it's, same way. Right. It's totally different. And that's that's where I think pharma is someday going to come in. And we are going to pharmacologically, uh, uh, not corrupt, but co-opt these cannabinoids into, into consistent doses, cons constituents that have uh, similarity between doses. And I think that will go a long way towards more of therapeutic efficacy. I got to tell you something, Doc, I've been trying to do this for mm, now it's going on 16 years. I've been trying to get someone in this industry, I've now have found a partner in the Massachusetts area that uh, my products will go back on shelves in Massachusetts here within the next month. Um, I have had a CBD product that's going to go back on the marketplace probably by the end of next month, a THC product that will go in the marketplace by the end of this month, um, where I've been doing just that. I literally, you know, though I do like the whole plant composition, I do like to find if I get what I think are valid COAs where I can take a look at what's there and then formulate a higher level of certain terpenes and a higher level of say CBD. I put together a, a 25, 75, a 50, 50 and a 75, 25 with particular terpene profiles in each one of them that I'm hoping that as long as they're manufactured and meet those levels, the response will be the same every time you use them. That's what I'm trying to do. But again, you know, feedstock is the feedstock. I mean, if I can't right. find the exact same quality feedstock, I got to find something else to put in there to elicit that same response. And it's it's tough. Right. And then, and then the other issue, of course, uh, is there's there's an aspect in, in medicine we call inter-individual variation. Yes. And that means that 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 particular strain and, and uh, compound of, of ingredients might work perfectly for you. But for another individual, it might blast them on their ass or, or not allow them to get out of bed. I, I know a woman who is in her mid-90s in a nursing home in upstate New York who takes a 40 milligram dose of THC every morning, uh, which would, would knock the crap out of, uh, out of most people. But she's habituated to it. You know, she's used to it. It's not a use disorder. She uses it for her, uh, for her Parkinson's disease, and is, it is quite successful. So there's there's a there's a there's a an array of of response based on that own, that patient's own genetic makeup. Absolutely. Well, talk a little bit about you know some of the most recent research that you've come across. 
Okay. There's some really exciting things that are going on. Like, let's take pain, for example. Pain is probably uh, the most common indication that medical patients use for, for cannabis. And, you know, together with morphine, cannabis is probably the most common medicinal uh, remedy for pain uh, over the last several thousand years. And there's really good evidence now that cannabinoids uh, prove very useful in the modulation of pain, that is how pain is transmitted in the body. And research has demonstrated that there is this parallel system in addition to the opioid system, there's an intrinsic opioid system that controls pain. There's also an intrinsic cannabinoid system that controls pain. And just one example, THC and CBD and a couple of analogs of CBD have been shown, this is, this is fresh research, have been shown that they inhibit the release of serotonin from platelets. And serotonin happens to be the, the neurotransmitter that is, um, that is one of the causes of migraine headaches, it turns out. It causes vasoconstriction in the brain. And, and in, in 1892, William Osler, who is like the father of the textbook of Western medicine, uh, he came out with a statement that the, the best uh, the most effective treatment for migraines was cannabis indica. And so here we are 130 years later uh, talking about using uh, cannabis for migraines. And it's even hard in some states to get it as a qualifying indication, but, but there is excellent scientific, pharmacologic, molecular, demonstrable proof of its effectiveness. And, and that's just one aspect of, of research. Uh, another, if I could go on for just a second, another sure. really fascinating um, uh, research line is the autism spectrum disorder. Yes, autism yes. is a uh, is a developmental problem. Its uh, its symptoms include impaired communication, social interaction, restricted or repetitive uh, motor movements, and uh, and autism spectrum disorder has been has been addressed very well with some remarkable studies in Israel uh, and, uh, and, and some really very interesting data, both anecdotal and hard science data are coming out. Uh, there's a, a one, just a, a brief anecdote, but it brings tears to my eyes every time I think about it. There's a woman I was working with in Southern uh, New Hampshire. She's the CEO of a major tech company in Boston. So very sophisticated woman. She has a nonverbal son who's now 17 years old, uh, who had been on Respiradol and other uh, you know, conventional meds that were just knocking the crap out of him, really didn't do much for his autism except reduce his explosive behavior, but he was totally nonverbal. She started him on CBD about two years ago. Uh, it didn't really uh, help, but she added low-dose THC and then they were sitting around, and she told me this story at a, at a, at a, at a meeting of the New Hampshire legislature. Uh, they were sitting at the dinner table, and, and, and this kid is 17 years old, never uttered a word, uh, but he's sitting at the table, and he says to, he says to his mother, could you pass the lasagna? <laughs> and the mother breaks down crying and says, can you talk? Can you talk? And he said, you know, he started to verbalize. And, and let me just go on with just the briefest uh, story. Uh, he, he really didn't speak well, but he spoke briefly. They were at a wedding and there was a toast to the bride and the groom and the son was at the wedding and, and he kept saying speech, speech, as if he wanted to give a speech. 
and he had never spoken before in public ever. And and so with the bride's agreement, they they there were a hundred people at this wedding. Uh, they let they they handed the microphone to this young man, and he he sang "Imagine" by John Lennon, which which just blew blew the pants off the entire crowd. Every there was not a dry eye in in the uh, in the audience. Now I know this is an anecdote, but it's it could be repeated a thousandfold in terms of the lives. Uh, that were brought back from very low-dose cannabis in the autism spectrum disorder. And, and as I said, there is some really good um, demonstrable evidence that, that it, it has a role. Uh, it's incredible. Well, Dr. Bertrand, I, I, I'm, I'm almost out of time, my friend. I, I, I really have to have you back. Please, could I beg you to come back? I, I thoroughly enjoyed our discussion, and there are so many points we didn't discuss. Oh, we didn't get to leave. It would be very useful to touch on it. We were just scratching the surface, my friend. I think we could go and go and go and go, and I'd love to do that with you. So, you know, um, let, let's plan on it. I will make sure our people reach out to you, and whenever you have an opportunity soon, I'd love to have you back because I'd like to hit my listeners and my viewers with, you know, a couple doses of you so they understand that, you know, there are real true pioneers out there. And you are one of them. If people wanted to reach out to you to get more information, is there a place they could go? Um, well, I think uh, I'll, I'll give you my email offline and we okay. could maybe discuss uh, how people can get in touch with me. All right, let's do that. And we'll, we'll put that up later after the fact. I'm going to say thank you. This has been an incredible conversation with Dr. Corey Bushman. Um, I, I wish you so much luck in everything that you're doing. I hope that Acreage, you know, can expand its footprint nationally and get more information out there. If there's ever anything I can do for you or help you get the word out, I'd love to help you and love to be by your side. We've spoken together once before. Yes, we have. And I, and I, I thoroughly appreciated the opportunity to help expand the knowledge base. Absolutely. Keep it up. Well, thank you so much. And thank you all out there for making sure you tune into. Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Thanks for joining me on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback also, so please send us your comments. Mm -hmm.